If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 3 tonight. It's on page 1003 in the Black Pew Bible, and we're actually returning to uh, where we left off before Christmas. And again, let me welcome back university students. Uh, I'm delighted that you can be with us again, and if you're visiting, we are in the midst of a Oh, a year, year and a half long study in this letter to the Hebrews. Tonight, we encounter the issue of spiritual immaturity and spiritual maturity. The writer will say, and we'll read it in a moment, at verse 12, you need milk, not solid food. At verse 14, solid food is for the mature. Well, what's milk for? It's for the immature. So those are the issues before us, immaturity. Maturity, and we'll do a little evaluation of ourselves this evening before the face of God and by way of his word. So let's hear this word uh, from Hebrews chapter 5, beginning of verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father, it is your word, and your word stands forever. Give us ears to hear. Grant that we would not be dull of hearing. For your glory, by your power and your spirit. Minister to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As most of you know, if you know my family, we're raising a baby again. I like to call it round two. When you have teenagers at home, 20-year-olds even, and infants, I like to think of little William as round two. This is the one I might get to get right. Who knows? It's certainly a lot of fun. Raises lots of questions, of course, especially about food. Lately, he's like a bird. When he wants your plate of food, he pops his lips like, like a bird. He'll just walk up to you. Feed me, he's saying, right? He, he'd rather stand next to you and feed off your plate than sit in his own chair and have what was designed for him. He's growing older. He's 15 months. Questions arise. How long will he nurse, Mama? What 
food can he eat? Can he have meat yet? How much protein should he have in his diet at this point? I mean, it's a whole lot of prunes these days and milk. So these kinds of questions come. And Mama, of course, says things like, well, he'll wean himself. And he's slowly begun. His appetite for big boy food keeps growing. He's probably going through a growth spurt. He's hungry a lot these days. It's all very normal. You'd be alarmed. Anybody with any common sense at all would be alarmed if he reverted only to milk. It would be regression. It would be a sign of great illness, disease, and infantile immaturity. Well, so too, the writer says, in spiritual matters, and yet so common among Christians that he has to write a letter to these he's writing to, and we need to hear this word ourselves. Feeding on spiritual food like babies instead of like adults, remaining in or reverting to immaturity instead of progressing to maturity. Why does that happen? What are the marks of that happening? How can we become mature? These are some of the questions before us. And I want to highlight four main things from the passage tonight. Here's your outline. At verse 11, he speaks of the cause of their spiritual maturity. Why are they immature? And he'll answer that. Then at verses 12 through 14, he shows you some of the symptoms of their spiritual immaturity. How is it manifesting itself? Then in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he says, now let's press on towards maturity. And he'll lay what the foundation of that maturity is. And then in verse 3, he'll say this. Here's the source of spiritual maturity. Here's where you get it. Verse 3. So those four things. In the first place, look back at verse 11. Why are these spiritually immature? What was the cause of it in their life? Well, verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing has brought about their spiritual immaturity. The story is told. I love preachers' stories that start that way. Who knows if the history is real? But the story is told of Franklin Roosevelt, who, like any president, I'm sure, had to endure long receiving lines uh, of guests at the White House. He complained, it is said, that no one really paid much attention to what was said as they were moving through the line. One day, during a reception, he decided to try an experiment to each person who came Down the line, he shook the hand and murmured, I murdered my grandmother this morning. (laughs) The guests responded with phrases like, marvelous, keep up the good work, we're proud of you, God bless you, sir. They weren't listening, of course, not till the end of the line when greeting the ambassador from Bolivia, who actually heard his words, and yet unconcerned, he just leaned over and whispered, I'm sure she had it coming. (laughs) I hope that's true. But I will say, I think we are often guilty of similar listening to Jesus. Nod politely, hear what we want to hear, say thanks and keep moving on. 
That's what he means, in a way, by dull of hearing. They aren't really paying attention, so he needs to interrupt them to rebuke them. See, he really wants to move on to the topic. In chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, the topic had been the perfect obedience of Jesus. And how because of his perfect obedience, he is the source of eternal salvation. Having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you don't know what all that means, they didn't either. That's okay. He's going to come back to that. But he wants to move on. He won't return till chapter 7. He has to put a big parenthesis here. He has to pause. Because they're dull of hearing. About this, he says, we have much to say. But you aren't ready to hear it. And it's not that the subject is difficult. Now, you maybe have never heard the, the, the word Melchizedek before. And that's okay. It's a name. You'll learn it. The subject's really not that difficult. It's not that they are too stupid to understand. But they have become dull or sluggish or lazy or complacent or smugly self-satisfied with what they know or think they already know. And so they're really not listening. And so what he has to do is begin by taking them down a notch. They think much too highly of themselves. That's why they're not listening. They think they have Christianity all figured out and they're proud of themselves. They don't really... Uh, you and I, nobody does really learn and grow if our attitude toward our teachers, yeah, 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 talk to the hand, whatever. I already know all this stuff. I don't need to hear what you have to say. If you think like that, when you hear the Bible, you are a child at best. Spiritually dead at worst. John Calvin says this, he alone is truly wise who owns that he is very far from perfect knowledge. When you think you have arrived, you think you have nowhere else to go. When you think you are mature, you don't think you need to grow anymore. And if you think you are mature, you are very immature indeed. These here are much like the modern American church so often and frequently described as a mile wide and an inch deep. Unread Bibles in every home, access to the largest libraries of the best Christian scholarship and the accumulation of it for 2,000 years, podcasts of excellent preaching from godly men from around the world if you want it, And yet we remain so often unfamiliar with the scriptures. We lack fluency in basic theological categories. We're spiritually babies with no interest in serving or helping or reaching others. That's us. Certainly here at Redeemer, we haven't gone deep enough. Surely we haven't progressed far enough as a people. I hope that you think that about us. I hope that you think that about yourself. Or are we too proud to admit that we aren't all grown up? Not yet. Some Christians think that the Bible commends spiritual naivety. Become like little children, Jesus said, and he did. But he meant in humility 
willing to be taught more and more, needy for what others can give to you, never pretending you have arrived or you are self-sufficient. Children want to grow and progress from milk to solid food. They want to make progress. But these in Hebrews were not like children. They were rather childish, like Peter Pan who never wanted to grow up. So that's the first thing you see here. It's a diagnosis of their problem. And the reason was they were dull, lazy, complacent in hearing. Now, how did he know that about them? Notice notice the second thing in verses 12 through 14, where he highlights at least three symptoms of their spiritual immaturity. In the first place, they were undeveloped in ministry. They were underdeveloped in theology. And thirdly, they were underdeveloped in moral discernment. Underdeveloped in ministry, that's where he begins, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You ought to be teachers, he says. I don't think he means that in a professional sense. He doesn't mean everybody in the church needs to aim to be a professional teacher or aim to be ordained to the office of pastor teacher. But all Christians should be learning and growing so that they can explain the gospel to others, so that they can open the Bible with others and talk about it. They ought to grow to the point where they can helpfully instruct people who aren't Christians about what basic Christianity is, who Jesus is, why we need him, what he did for us, what it means to believe in him. And certainly to turn to younger believers and help them along. That's the kind of thing. It's in a very informal sense, I think, here. He means you ought to be teachers by now, but, but, but rather you've become ineffective and not useful to others. You aren't being helpful to others. You aren't even looking after yourselves the way that you should is what he's saying to them. And it's not just that they aren't going forward, but it is that they've actually gone backwards. They've reverted to immaturity. And so they were underdeveloped in ministry and they were underdeveloped in doctrine. He goes on to say in verse end of verse 12, you need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. What's he getting at? It's as though their mother had weaned them off the breast. They started to eat from the table and suddenly they're back on the breast. It's a sign of illness. They are unskilled, he says, in the word of righteousness. The normal way to grow in the Christian life is by receiving teaching particularly about God's gift of righteousness. And Christian faith is not some single mind-blowing experience where you just instantly go from not only death to life, and you do at some point cross over from death to life, but you don't suddenly mature into the most mature Christian. It's a series of lessons. And it is impossible to grow in spiritual maturity without understanding doctrinal truth. We can't just say, you know, we should just leave that to the experts. Oh, that's a doctrinal point. Well, I'm sure my pastor has that one figured out. Your pastor doesn't have them all figured out. Love to study it together with you. We can figure out some things. The Christian church has had 2,000 years to figure out quite a bit. But we can't just say, oh, no, no, no. Just love Jesus in your heart, but truth and theology and the Bible, that stuff doesn't really matter. That's not true. 
We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1. Jesus prayed for us, sanctify them. Father, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. He prayed that way and he promised it. Jesus said to his disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's good for your soul. And it is dangerous to remain doctrinally ignorant children. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, we are to mature. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Immature believers are too easily led astray. You don't want to remain that way. It's not wrong to start out immature. We all do. Don't remain there. They were underdeveloped in ministry, underdeveloped in doctrine, underdeveloped in morals. He goes on to say at verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to what? To distinguish good from evil. So they need uh, solid food. Milk represents elementary teaching. Solid food represents more profound teaching, especially about Jesus Christ. That's who he wants to talk about in chapter 7 and will. He wants to get back to Jesus. And that truth is designed to transform us. It's not just designed so that you can fill your head with knowledge and be puffed up and proud. It's not designed to make you arrogant because you know more than other believers. It's not, and, and that's easy to do. It is meant to be internalized and then to bear fruit like food causes you to grow bones and muscles and brains. So too spiritually, spiritual food is designed to transform you, mature you, so that their powers of judgment won't be impaired so that your ability to discern good and evil and choose the right path aren't weakened. But they were making poor moral choices. He knows that because they hadn't discerned good from evil. And he knows that's a sign of their immaturity. You know, a small child will stick almost anything in her mouth. She'll touch almost anything she can reach. Go anywhere she can manage to crawl with no concept of what is good for her or what is bad for her, hurtful for her. What's dangerous? The mature adult has learned some discernment. She's careful about what she eats. She's careful about what she does, about where she goes. It's a true spiritual principle as well. They were immature in these three ways. So what does he say to them? What does, he, what does he say? What's his solution here? It is in the first place, verses 1 and 2, they need to grow in maturity. They need to press on towards maturity. Let us, therefore, chapter 6, verse 1, leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, don't misunderstand him here. He is not saying that they need to leave Jesus behind. To really move forward spiritually. We never go beyond Christ. We never go beyond our need for Christ. But we do go deeper into Christ. Our knowledge of him. Our experience of him. 
And so when he talks about this elementary doctrine, he describes it as a foundation. We build on that foundation. He, he goes on to say not laying a foundation again. That foundation has already been laid. That foundation is the elementary principles of Christ. They've already received this. And he's just saying, look, you can't put a roof on a house without walls. And you don't build walls without first building the foundation. you got to have the foundation. And then we need to go on from there. Now, the way he puts it is kind of interesting. Because you expect him to say, okay, here we go. You guys are immature. Let me remind you of the basics. Let me remind you of the elementary principles. And we're going to spend a long time thinking about the elementary principles. You had not gotten those right. We might as well dive in. But he actually doesn't do that. He says, we're not going to do that. He, he notes for them what those elementary principles are. He lists six things. But, he, but then he just goes on from there. He goes on to the deeper stuff. It's an interesting teaching technique when people don't get what you're saying and you, in a way talk even further over their heads. But again, the problem is not the teaching, and the problem is not that it's difficult. Again, the problem is with them, they're dull of hearing, because they've become lazy and self-satisfied about the easy stuff, and they think they've arrived, and Christianity has nothing more to say to them. He provokes them to humility by saying, all right, let me give it to you straight up. Do you remember Jesus in the Great Commission said to his church, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them what ev- to obey everything I have commanded Jesus. Jesus didn't think that it was important to get the maximum amount of people, the minimum amount of truth. But Jesus said it's important to get the maximum amount of truth to the maximum number of people. Go into all nations and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, maximally. And so here, the writer is saying, look, if people are spiritually lazy, what do you do? Well, you challenge them. Don't just pander to their infantile appetite. If they're doctrinally weak and uninterested, present to them solid, deep teaching. If they refuse to give up the bottle, take it away. If they won't drink from the cup, They'll get nothing. There's a sense in which the Bible teacher needs to aim above the head of his hearers to stretch them. You can obviously go too high. You can just discourage and demoralize believers. And there's never to be an intention of that. It's always to be done in love. But we don't want to breed in people the idea that the Bible has nothing more to say to them. And so what are these six foundational or elementary truths that he just mentions briefly and says, you know, we're going to go on from here? He speaks of six. They're, they're in kind of, there's six of them in, in couplets. There's three couplets. He speaks of the foundation, notice, in chapter 6, uh, end of verse 1, not laying again a foundation of what? Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. What's he talking about there? Uh, it's the only use of the word dead works in the Bible seems to be that he's talking about that first turning away from works that can't save you by turning to the work of Christ that can. 
uh, turning away from all efforts at self-salvation. Works that are dead, and they flow from a dead person. You turn from that, and what do you do? You believe in God. You trust in God. You trust in God's promise of salvation in Jesus. And right there, you can see clearly that he doesn't mean that you just abandon these elementary principles. I mean, it's not like he would ever say, we don't need to keep believing in God anymore. Right? So that's not what he's talking about. You keep on trusting in God. And thirdly, he mentions instructions about washings. That's the plural of the word for baptism. He may simply have in mind baptism, instruction about baptism. He may have in mind the various ceremonial washings that are found in the book of Leviticus, which uh, in some measure find their fulfillment in Christian baptism and into the body. Then he mentions the laying on of hands uh, in conjunction with baptism. Now, he might be thinking of that physical act. I mean, maybe you've never even thought about the laying on of hands. And he says this is an elementary principle. So let's comment briefly. He might be thinking of that physical act of literally laying hands on someone that was associated with the apostles in the book of Acts at the giving of the Holy Spirit at times. An apostle would lay hands on people while preaching to the gospel and the Holy Spirit would be poured out on people. But it wasn't invariably true that the Holy Spirit came that way. Cornelius, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, all received the Holy Spirit without the laying on of hands. You probably did too. And so I don't think that's what he means. It might be what he means. I lean to the view that he more probably has in mind ordination to office which was done through the laying on of the hands of the presbytery or of the council of elders and is symbolic of the giving of the spirit and the gifting of the spirit for ministry. It's actually something Paul told Timothy when he said, don't neglect the gift that is in you through the laying on of hands of the presbytery when he was set apart for the gospel ministry. And it's actually something we're going to see done right here in just a few weeks or more. When we ordain men to the office of elder and hands are laid on them and prayers are prayed for the giving of the spirit and his gifts for ministry. I think that's what he means. Fifth, he speaks of the resurrection of of the dead, our hope for the future. And couple that with eternal judgment, why you need Jesus, what you were saved from, the judgment of God. Uh, And again, I say these are six and in couplets. And I, I think it's possible, and here I must tell you, I've, I haven't read it anywhere. Uh, you'll get people arguing that these are Christian things he's talking about. You'll get people arguing, no, these are actually six Jewish things that, that, that he wants them to leave behind. I actually think he's chosen these six for this reason, and I could be completely wrong. Because, because each of these is in its own way about the beginning of things. The beginning of the Christian life, repentance and faith. The beginning of life in the church, Baptism, your solemn admission, the beginning of ministry and ordained office, the laying on of hands, the beginning of glory, which starts with the resurrection from the dead and our appearance before the judgment seat of Christ. And yet where we will be acquitted and and publicly declared to be acquitted as we are already for all who are in Christ. But it will be known to the universe that we are good. But, but these are all the beginning of things, the beginning of the Christian life, the beginning of, of life in the church and life in ministry, and the beginning of, 
of the new heavens and the new earth and all its glory. And the point is you start these things, but you don't finish. These are the beginning of things, not the end. They open the door to progress. There's living the Christian life after you've become one. There's serving and fellowshipping in the body of Christ when you've been brought into it. And certainly heaven will be amazing in glorifying and enjoying God face to face forever. And not just marveling that we have a new body. So he says, build on this foundation. Don't just start things. This is his point. We need to make progress. We need to press on in knowing Christ. In being competent in sound doctrine. In learning the Bible. In applying the Bible to issues of good and evil. In living out that truth. And so being equipped to be helpful in teaching others. This is what he wants us to press on to. Where do you get that? Where does it come from? What is its source? Verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. This is not some pious cliche. Maturity only comes from God. In fact, the language here of let us go on to maturity is literally at verse 1. Let us be carried forward to maturity. God carries us Forward, Christianity is supernatural from beginning to end. It is not a matter of just exercising some supposed natural ability to pull the right levers or turn the right keys to move the machinery of progress as a believer. We are wholly dependent on God, wholly in need of the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to hear in just a few moments at the close of this worship service his benediction or blessing from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 21. And I will say this to you from God's word. May God equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. May God equip you. Equip you with everything good. Equip you with everything good to do his will. God working in us. Working in us what? That which is pleasing to him. If we grow, it is because God wills it. If we do not grow, if we are stunted and have gone backward, it takes the supernatural power and work of the Spirit to make us move forward. We're not alone in this, folks. Part of the problem For us is thinking that ultimately it's all in our hands. And so they were saying things like, you know, you can take it or leave it. You can grab it or let it go. You can turn it on like a switch or turn it off like a switch. No wonder they were lazy. They thought at any moment it was all within their reach. Profound theological understanding. Profound godly Christian living in the face of temptation and and wickedness. And confusion and muddledness about what's good and what's evil. They thought at any moment I can just turn it on and do what's right, think what's right, believe what's right. That's absurd. God commands you to do something that you do not have the ability in yourself to do. And he does so because it's right. And you aren't able to do it because you remain, even as a believer, fallen and sinful And without him, you can do nothing. But with him, 
you can grow by his grace. There's no foolproof formula for spiritual growth. I can't give you 10 steps to Christian maturity and get you to walk up the staircase. Just as the Ethiopian cannot change his spots and the leopard cannot, I mean, his skin and the leopard cannot change his spots. So you and I cannot change our own hearts. God must do it by his grace, by his power, by his spirit. That's that's clearly true at the beginning of the Christian life in Hebrews chapter 11, when it says without faith, it is impossible to please God. And in Hebrews chapter 13, he prays that God would work in us that which is well-pleasing in his eyes. What's well-pleasing? Faith. But it's not just true at the beginning. It's true not just with regard to faith. It's true with regard to growth. His sovereignty in that does not deny or remove our responsibility to pursue it. It enables it. We work out our salvation, as Paul says in Philippians 2, for it is God who works in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So press on, brothers and sisters. And this we will do if God permits. And that leaves us dependent. Read the Bible, brothers and sisters, and ask God for help in understanding Let me have this sermon close with an invitation to you to come back every week this semester and by his grace, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And that leads us finally to this table. Because at this table, we don't simply take and eat because we think we'll grow if we grab and swallow. But we take and eat because we're empty and Jesus is food. We're depleted and he is nourishment. We're weak But he is our strength because without him we're dead, but he is our life. Come believing in him as you come to this meal. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your word. Have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen.